This is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! Hello, small business warriors. I'm Joel Volk, and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. As I look back at my years in business, I remember that there are many, many times I needed a lawyer to just poke their nose in and take a look and see what they could do to help. Sometimes I just needed advice on a lease. Other times I needed to have a contract that a customer wanted me to sign or a vendor wanted me to sign and I wanted someone to look at it. Sometimes I had to worry about employment law. Other times I needed to change my corporation, make partnership agreements, things on that level. So I'm very proud that we are sponsored by a firm that specializes in these types of things for small businesses. Coincidentally, it's called the Small Business Law Firm. Scott Williams is the principal attorney at the Small Business Law Firm. He's the go-to guy for anything related to small business matters. I like to think of them as the Swiss Army knife for your business. So when you're ready, and even if you're not ready, keep it on hand because you might be ready sooner than you know, call 855-5-BIZ-LAW. That's 855-524-9529. Ask for Scott, mention the Small Biz Cast, and remember they're a great resource should things get ugly. I'm very excited to bring you Osher Dahan of Block Ransomware. Osher's idea to solve one of the biggest threats to business is now as patented technology and is in the marketplace. Osher will share his journey from the idea phase to making his business thrive. As you listen to this interview, as a small business person, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Osher. Hopefully, you'll laugh with us too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. When I looked at your LinkedIn profile, you have um, an interesting way of describing yourself. You call yourself a network engineer and you also call yourself a technology professional and you also call yourself an entrepreneur. And so I'm curious, what is the first word that you would use to describe yourself of those three? Problem solver would be really the beginning of everything. Um, Just someone that's always looking for how to help other people solve problems and that created in some way many of the businesses and the adventures that I got into. Recognizing a certain need in the market or something that people needed a lot of help with and could not get it in a reasonable price or in a good enough service and I thought that I can give them something way better compared to what I had seen and just the joy of helping people. The fact that it pays good after that, I mean, that's a bonus, but it started from the satisfaction of seeing someone that is hurting from normally something with technology and being able to help them out to get it up and running. So So technology is your field. Your company's block ransomware. It's a product that protects businesses, I presume, presume primarily businesses, yes? Are there individuals that get hit by, by ransomware? Everyone is getting hit by ransomware, but um, it's a lot simpler for an individual to just have a backup of their hard drive. It's very, very difficult for a business that you have 10, 20, 30, 100, or maybe even 1,000 people to do the same level of protection. And the cost is dramatically in a different level when you have um, five offices with 20, 30 people in each, and all of them got shut down at the same time within 10 minutes. You're talking about millions of dollars going down the drain, even if you had a backup system, which might have been encrypted as well. So it's a very, very dramatic um, cost. The story is actually interesting how we even got to it. I mean, you always wonder, um, especially now that we got a patent on the product and the trademarks and everything, like where did that all come from? And always start from some pain. I mean, we had basically seen clients that would come our way. They were not our clients, but they basically dumped their other IT people who had not provided enough protection. And those clients were in a great need of saving their business or losing their data. And it was going to be very, very costly. And you get tired of paying ransom fees to be able to retrieve their data. Until one day I woke up in the morning with what someone would say, this is crazy what you're actually suggesting to do. And I thought, no, it's not. It's different, and maybe that's why you guys are referring to that as crazy. And it took two years in a lab. I already had my first business up and running to build it, to test it, to run it, to be sure that I think I got a winner and send it out to five different engineers that I worked with in different parts of the country. They all tortured it and came back to the same conclusion. And from that point, it was nice to just go and get a lot of my good friends, provisors to help me to... uh, 
build a brand new business, get all the patents with some people that um, I know in the legal and the rest of it is history. So yeah. So one of the things I wanted to bring you on for is that people are starting businesses. You had this, you had, you saw the pain, you, you, you saw the solution. That's typically not good enough to start a business. Typically you have to have other rules in place. I remember being in your office in the early days of block ransomware and there was a poster on your wall and it had all of the team members on your uh, that had contributed to helping you get from a place where you can launch the product. This was way before you even launched the product in terms of being, making it available to clients. This was probably just during the testing phase, I believe. And then it was before um, you even had your patents or anything on that level. This was just taking the germ of an idea and bringing it to fruition. Can you walk us through, you know, kind of quickly, all of the steps you took and the team you put together and, the type of investment that you, you put in place to make sure that you had a path to success. When I realized that black ransomware would be something that can be sold over the entire world, it was clear to me that for me to try and do it with few people working for me in the office, this will never fly. It needed a much larger organization, if you're gonna call it, something that would look like an enterprise company with all the right pieces, which normally require marketing, operations, legal, PR and many many other financials, CPA and on and on. And yeah, I had did you, do this with, did you do this with investors or did you do it just yourself? Um, both ways. Um, I had um, actually Black Ransomware because it is a, a company that um, set up as an LLC with um, stocks that are owned privately by the company. Um, just about every person that wanted to work for Black Ransomware or offer services for Black Ransomware was willing to trade their working hours for stocks. There was no other way to be able to own a piece of the business unless if you provided some service. Um, outside of it, um, we had an investor from Israel who is a good friend and had done a lot of work in the security space. And he wanted to participate financially, uh, obviously because of distance, he couldn't really contribute too much work, although he's very well connected to bring other uh, partners to the table. So the design was, other than having this really cool technology that you built, you have to move on to phase two about how do I protect it, which required five lawyers to be able to have all the proper protection. How do I sell it, which required multiple people in the marketing department. And that's where a big poster board came up on the wall that had all the different boxes that I, need. I knew I need people. And then going back to my big network of people improvisers and thinking, who are the people that would be best qualified to potentially work with me? And interviewing them one by one, seeing a few things that were critical to me. One, that they have the right expertise. Obviously, that's a given. Two, that there will be good team players because there were many areas in the chart where there was an opportunity for people to fight over who's gonna be doing the work. And if there wasn't great cooperation, it will never gonna work out. I did not want to be a babysitter for a group of 30 people that I assembled in two months. Right. Um, and the third one was that they would believe enough in the product that they would actually say, you know what, I'm willing to trade some of my hard earned dollars for stock in the company, which was a key to me to understand that they really know what they're getting into or they would say, no, just give me the money and that's it. You right. do with it whatever you want. So they became inside investors in one way or another with a strong drive to make the company successful because the bigger the company, the more they get. They get. They I also want to add that to get professionals to give you sweat equity, it, it speaks to your own integrity and the relationships you've built over time. You, you, you can't do that with strangers. You have to do it with people you've built a relationship with, have Correct. worked in the past, have, have proven your credibility with. Otherwise, that'll probably never happen. And, and especially if you're in the driver, you as the as the, as the CEO want to drive this, you want to have the people you want, not just the people you can settle for. So you have to have- Correct. Shows, right. You want to have fun. I mean, so when you have all of these people coming together, yeah. you want to know that they, they know each other, um, they respect each other expertise in the field. And um, all together, when you get a teamwork to be able to get something done, and clearly I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a CPA, I am not a marketing person, and if I had attempted to pretend to be do them all and run the technical aspect of the product, 
I guarantee everyone you're gonna fail 100%. It's just a matter of time. I mean, already trying to be ahead of everyone on the technical part required a good 16 to 18 hours of work every day for a good two years. It was pretty much um, get up in the morning at six, get to the lab, stay until 1 a.m., um, go back to sleep, start over. That was life. But if you have something that is driving you enough to um, make something happen, unfortunately, that's part of the sacrifice. Nothing of great scale um, doesn't come easy. It just requires a lot of work. Now, so I, I, was I, sus I suspect this, you did this all while running your other business, which is what paid your bills and kept the room. Yes. That's, <laughs> so one that's company the impressive part. And I knew you during this time. And I remember how you exhausted you were. But I also want to tell you that you always spoke with an amazing amount of energy and enthusiasm because you believed in this so much that it was, it was intoxicating to be around you. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on Small BizCast is because that type of entrepreneurship doesn't happen. You know, it's very hard to get to that place, but it's also very natural. You can't really, you can't really train someone to be that kind of entrepreneur. That's just right. within. So to me, the key was as long as I get up in the morning with no alarm clock, 5.30 on the clock or even sometime before, and I have this crazy drive in my head to just get up, quickly shower and get to the office. There's so much work to do. There's this little problem we can solve yesterday and maybe today we'll make some more progress with that. That's amazing. And even that people say, well, did you stay in the office until one and two in the morning? Why? And it was like, I didn't even know it's one or two o'clock in the morning. I was still in the <laughs> right. middle of getting right. it done that finally I realized, oh my God, I got to go home to get some sleep. Yes. Yeah. I got to get up again the next morning. It wasn't a sprint. It was a marathon. And that's a really tough one. I'm not, I think that some people might be able to sustain a long period of time going in this madness and it's really madness. And I don't think it's highly recommended. Um, I think that sometime um, it can really uh, kill a lot of things in you. If you don't have the endurance to go through something like that, it could be very, very tough. So um, I like to do things to a quite high level of perfection, which kind of like gets in my way sometime. We all know how that works. So certain things that even that I already delegated, if I didn't get the results exactly in the way they should be, I would rerun them again until I'm going to get what I want. And that takes a lot of time. And unfortunately, time and time again, you're being kind of like pulled back to deal with stuff that you really didn't want to deal with in the first place. It's a tricky situation. I mean, but everyone were has you, their way about it. Were you able to find time for uh, family? And I know you're a big tennis fan, big tennis player, right? right time for that in your life at that time that's the, i mean so there's look there's no cheating on that one there's a sacrifice because we all get the 24 hours a day so when you have something that makes it a priority then the little time that you have in between if it is a time over the weekend or anything like that you get the best that you can out of it with family with tennis my tennis sacrificed big time in those two years because there wasn't enough of it but once i reached a certain point that the product was out the patents were filed and I felt like, okay, I got over the big top of the mountain in a time period that I needed to match up. Um, at that point, I could actually go back, hire two coaches, now work more on my mental and my physical and get back to all the friends were before. I could only say, I'm really busy. I'm sorry. I have, I have a deadline and I have to finish. So I, I didn't invent more time. I wish I could but I had to use the time in the best way that I can to get something accomplished. And, and there are sacrifices in the process. There's no doubt. Before we get to the, to the, to the background, that which means, you know, your history that brings you to who you are. Tell us about the product. Does it, has it been successful in the field? Has it been tested and used in a wide area? So we've been testing it in um, five different um, states um, in the United States. So I basically took my, Best engineers, I mean, over the 30 years that I built my first company, um, Accurate Data Networks, I have met many, many people, you can imagine. 30 years of running a business is a long time. So they, the five engineers which tested and became partners were able to basically start rolling the product. We have designed the product to be um, that Black Ransomware stays the top company feeding all the partners that we certify, and each one of them goes into their own clients. So in a way, we open a really interesting umbrella right from the get-go 
that those partners that got certified are the only one with access to this technology and they can go back into their own private clients and install it and maintain it and make all the profit with a very wide range of um, very reasonable price of uh, profit for the partners. So everyone in a way had a good way to win something, the client, the partner, like ransomware, and that kind of like guaranteed that it will continue for a while rather than a short time success and then no one really interested in it. Do you want to elaborate on how, I don't want to ask you questions about the secrets of the product unless you want to share them, but I've never heard exactly what makes block ransomware distinct. We can definitely talk. I mean, there's enough public and obviously all the patents already. When you get a patent, you have to disclose what are you protecting. So we actually, right. by now, we've given quite a bit of the secret sauce because that's what we got the patents for. And if you're not willing to tell the world, well, what did you do it? Or how did you do it? Then how did you, how would you prevent someone else from doing exactly the same thing? But where did it all start, Asher? So when I was probably 12 years old, um, my dad was always a fixer. I mean, he is kind of like worked on anything from machines, engines, was in the Navy for quite a while and was always really good with his hands and a good troubleshooter. He worked in um, a pretty large factory and where he used to live in Haifa. And as you can imagine, at some point of time, factories changed, that company went out of business and he got asked to be trained in um, solving electronic problems. He decided to take new training and move to something else. I had a great laugh every time I would see him fixing because that was black and white TVs at the time. And the only thing that he knew how to fix was if there was a light bulb inside a TV that was not on. That was his clue that that's the one to fix. And I kept asking him, so what if it's not the light bulb? There's all these other things here. What are you doing? So I don't know. That's as far as I know. Is that so, back in the days with tube testers? Right? Yes, yes, yes. Where they had I mean, the vacuum much, tubes? Yep. You took the cover and you looked and you were searching for like, which one is dark? And that's the clue. <laughs> that's the bad one. I mean, that's that. But it's so to all you kids there. out there, to all you kids out there, before there were electronic circuit boards and motherboards and printed circuit boards, there were tubes and, 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 and transistors replaced the tubes. And yes. And so, uh, and so, so back when we were kids, but we sound like we're 100 years old, but we're really not. That's how the TVs worked, the televisions worked. Right. So my dad was receiving all kind of like manuals in English that basically had the entire schematics of the entire TV, and I was really intrigued by all these things. So I started to learn many of them. Um, I definitely had a good sense for electronics. I got the equipment, and from that day on, anything that he said I can fix that one, I said let me do it. And sooner or later, two years later, I was the fixer in the neighborhood. If it was a VCR, for some of you guys that know what videotapes are, <laughs> or if it was an, an amp, everyone had stereos at home, all kind of like stereo equipment, I fixed everything. And it was great. Um, it definitely gave me a chance to build more confidence in what I can do. Um, I had a good sense of um, breaking up a really big problem of like it's not working to the smaller component and finding out the 50 cent item that need to be replaced and make the whole thing work. So that was a wonderful skill that actually helped me way later in life to be able to look at a really big problem instead of saying, let's just replace the whole thing, being able to narrow it down to the smallest part that actually causing the problem and fix it up from there. So that's where it started. I mean, um, I had my electronic, degrees in engineering in Israel, which obviously was a great opportunity. And even when I was 16, there were only two kids from my entire school that were taken out after school to um, a military contractor that was building all kind of like interesting projects and I guess needed cheap labor. We were 16 and we knew what to do. And I worked on military stuff. Even then, we, we would assign a, an engineer that worked on some fiber optic um, secret project. And we were the one that designed and built it and did everything for the guy. So he was very, very happy. And again, wonderful exposure to um, um, higher level of um, electronics or security or anything that came with it and um, solving a problem. Again, just building something. Now, when you, when you were in the IDF, did you... Did you serve in a similar capacity or were you an infantryman? What did you do? Yes, I, because I had already a lot of my education done before the military. You actually get a choice in Israel. Um, my profile was high, so I could have been in any 
in the Air Force or the Navy or wherever I wanted as an, a soldier that would go and fight a war. But my choice was to actually sign up for one more year for the Army with the condition that they let me choose what I want to do in the Army. So actually using my prior education to be assigned to work in security, communication, or anything that was relevant to my knowledge rather than why don't you stay in the tent right there at the border and in my opinion that was going to be a complete waste of what I could have given to the army. So I had four years of um, superior education of um, growing up um, a team of people that I was responsible for working in secure communication which was um, something that I would never find in the public sector. Um, the army in Israel get the best of the best that they can put their hands on. So you kind of like ahead of the game by a few years. And um, it was a terrific preparation for what will come after, um, both from running a team of people and working kind of like on the edge of technology and security, able to come back again to the public sector where you're like so ahead of the game compared to anyone who had not had that kind of an experience. That was a big jump start. Did the military foster your, your, uh, your skills? Did they help you develop them? Yeah, I mean, they definitely, you get evaluated to be able to find out what is it you can do. And they try to match you in the best way that they can. Not everyone can go to the same space. Um, but you definitely get enough opportunities. Even if you started in a particular area that wasn't exactly it, there's so much else that you can move on even during your service in the military um, that um, if you have some special skills, they would use them. They will find a good way to put it to use. So I, I, I know that at the time I was in the military, like any other soldier, we complained because you have too many buses over your head that tell you what to do and everything else. But only later you realize that when there is a book of how to do something properly on an airplane, there is a reason for that. And there is right. no nonsense about, oh, well, I forgot two screws. Who cares? That <laughs> airplane with the two loose screws can actually just crash and burn and kill everyone on it. Right. So the discipline level that you learn is everything needs to be done right. There is a reason to why we do things in a certain way, and you need to follow that system. It's not just like do what you want, which oftentimes leads to disasters in any field. Well, my experience with you is that you carry that forward in your life in general, that you do things right in general. It seems to me, yeah. whether it's innate or whether it's learned, it seems to me as though you've made that part of who you are. Uh, I I think that a lot of those seeds were planted back in time and um, you get to know and understand why. And although they are harder to always implement, to do it just absolutely right, it's definitely a sure way to be more successful because there are a lot of people that will do things on a very average way. And if you want to stand out, you would go the extra mile and get things done right, where a lot of people just could not for the life of them get it right. So if I'm a young person in business, or at least have interest in business, do you recommend that they have take a military path? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I know that going through it, I would not say the same words I'm saying now, but once you're out of it, and now you really recognize what did you get back, the discipline, um, the ability to manage people as you move with your years, with your career in the military, you get assigned a team of people. Now you're not only responsible for what you do, now you have to mentor those 10, 20 people that you got. Um, you have to teach them and you have to raise them from a guy who just showed up <clears throat> yesterday at the base to someone that in a year would be your superstar because he has all the um, capacity and he needed some grooming and some path that was, would be assigned to him by a leader to get the best out of him. And it's not any different when you create a business. I mean, no one period, no one can do everything on their own. It doesn't matter in which field. So if you are able to get the skills of building a large team, as large as you can be, and those people would look up to you and respect what you're doing and you taught them right about how to get things done, you would have a great company. I don't care what the field would be. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think you, until you learn how to uh, work in a team and delegate responsibility, create clear goals and methods for achieving those goals, validation processes, I don't believe you can build a business. I think if you do, it's all serendipity. It's all just good luck. But if you want to really 
increase your op- odds of doing that. That said, the nature of an entrepreneur doesn't seem like it would be, you know, the entrepreneur's personality seems counterintuitive to joining the military, what, right, right about the time when they, they're ready to start, you know, hit the ground running. So it, uh, it, so the reason I asked you is because you really are an entrepreneur, but you have this background and I'm sure it made you a better entrepreneur. So I just thought it was an interesting take. It's, it's a mixed bag. And yes, I realized that during the first part of the military in Israel, they just like, um, they don't beat you up, but they basically want everyone to just like behave. And you get a bunch of clowns at day one who want to do all kind of nonsense and they have to use a really strong arm to basically tell everyone we are the boss and you're going to do exactly what we tell you to do. Right. And it's not always easy. because you're Not open to interpretation, way. not open to nuance. Right. 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 And, um, and, you know, it takes time and that's, I think, the period of time where you really kind of like resist it and mm-hmm. not too thrilled about the whole concept. And you don't always understand why they're going with all these crazy rules they come up with. Um, and only later you realize there is a system that was designed in a particular way, which seemed to be proven to get good results. And that's how it's done. Uh, easier to say than do. <laughs> but uh, in any event, I mean, th- this will, I would definitely recommend um, something like that to be able to build a few more than anything else, the, the discipline. Um, to be able to really pay attention to the smallest detail possible, um, the opportunity to work with a group of people and, and mentor them. I think that's critical. And um, sometimes it's just really tough and sometimes it's going to be really rough and you're not going to like it and you're still going to have to keep your head up and move on to the next day. And it's not any different in business. I mean, look at what we're going through these days for a lot of small businesses with the whole COVID-19 I mean, this is a really rough patch for any business owner and the strong ones will in a way to be able to get through and maybe even some of them excel in this really difficult time. They would find niches where their business would do even better than what it could have done before and some others will not. Right. Listen, any crisis like this, you have winners and losers and it doesn't, sometimes it's not in your control, but when it is in your control, it's how you pivot, how you adapt. That doesn't happen um, again, it doesn't happen by luck. You have to, you have to be creative and figure it out, figure out what, what, what problems there are to solve. You right. start out your conversation saying you're a problem solver. Guess what? A whole new set of problems that we didn't know before the COVID issue occurred. And, um, and, and the people that are going to succeed during this time are the ones that have decided to pivot and realize they have a new set of problems and that they, if they have the tools to solve it. You know, when I walk my neighborhood, uh, earlier today, I see these signs that say, you know, close until further notice. And, and I just, as a, as a business person, I feel my heart bleeds for them. But, but I also think, like one of them was a gym. I also hear people doing Zoom workouts with trainers and thinking, mm-hmm. we're pivoting. How many, are, how many are just closed until further notice? Why doesn't this sign say, log on, you know, email me and we'll set up a training session? Is it, is it, a, is it a different personality type? Is it a different paradigm? But close until further notice seemed like such a, uh, a sad commentary. And he was, and that, I'm going to say he, he or she, whoever owns that business, doesn't have to close that without further notice. They just have to close that spot. But they, should, they still have a place where people are walking by that they can expose themselves and, and, and create a, a, an opportunity for themselves, even if it's small right now. They, can, they should. And it's, it's just a different way people think about business and what their opportunities and challenges are at the time. My guess yeah, I mean, you never have to sign on your business that said close until further notice. I think that the idea you just gave is a wonderful idea. Hopefully, many people that own a gym just listen to this one and say, oh my God, I didn't think about it. It's all right. Um, so yeah, this is the classic um, make lemonade if you were given lemons. Someone right. would just basically not going to be happy and someone else would say, I'm going to make some business out of this. One of the things that I really enjoy doing, and I always find it to be very similar to um, challenges in life or just even everything in life is tennis. We play, I'm a huge tennis fan, spend hours and hours to no end on the tennis court. And what's interesting about tennis is that the game is broken up to to points, to um, sets, to games, to entire matches. And you have to, even in a single match, you're probably going to win some points and you're going to lose some points. 
and the person you're playing against is not the guy you played with the day before, so he plays different, and you have to adjust your game to what is the other guy doing, and why is he successful at hitting me with those shots which I've never seen before, and I can't play the game that I just won yesterday easily because this is a different look at the ball, and I have to adjust. And even if you lost the game, you have to do your homework and say, well, why did I lose today? How come? What was the weakness? What can I do? If I played with the same guy tomorrow, what would I change about my game that can beat him? And it's a constant adjustment. There is no perfect way to like sit on your hands and be happy. I got it from now on the money machine. We'll just keep printing money. It doesn't work. It doesn't work on a tennis court and it doesn't work in business. Sometimes we get very lucky to have a day or a week where everything just seemed to work. And, and it's like, wow, that's amazing. And then we go back into some troublemakers, some new vendor that tried to take a piece of your work, uh, some technology that was never working before and now came into the field. And it's kind of like putting you at risk immediately with some other piece of business that you were doing so well before. No, you hit the nail on the head. Complacency doesn't work in business no matter what size the business is. You can't just wait for it to happen. You just brought back the memory of going to the mall with my son when, when he was uh, younger and we go to the Apple store and we buy something and we're talking to the Apple associate. And before I know it, I've, someone handed me the product and I checked out and I was out. And in the same trip to that mall, I had to go to Macy's and I had to buy a toaster and the line, you know, you had to stand in line like, you know, like you're going to like, like they're giving you the privilege of buying something. For some reason, this is not that long ago, by the way, for some reason, I'm watching the cashier and she had to put a thousand keystrokes into this selling things. I, I can understand why, why can't she just scan this and sell it to the person? And it took an hour to buy a toaster and the retail experience was so painful by comparison. It literally took me an hour to buy a $40 toaster where you know, uh, an hour and 20 minutes earlier, I was in the Apple store having just the joy of being able to purchase product. My credit card gets, well, I don't even know what happened. All of a sudden someone's handed me the product because they've got the, the retail experience changed so much. Why? But so Macy's was complacent, by the way, are they, I don't even know if they're still in business or not. I don't, I don't think I've been to Macy's since, but uh, the closing stores the and maybe is, bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. But the point is the complacency of the customer experience they clearly weren't interested in the customer experience and they clearly weren't interested in, in seeing how other people are doing it to improve. They probably made money at some point and said, this is how we make money and never changed their methodology. And I think it's for uh, those of us in business, we should be constantly checking in our, you know, putting our toe in the water and, and see what the customers think and see if we, how we can improve the, the experience. It's, it's never ending. Complacency doesn't work in business, no matter how much money you're making. I, I totally agree. And I think um, in every single business, if it is a restaurant or if it is a technology store, or even if it is a clothing store, if you make the experience more um, unique and something that is fun and pleasure for the client to come back, you got a great business. But if what right. you described with the toaster, if I was in your place, I'm never going to walk into Macy's again. I'm so done. That's it. No, I, now, now Amazon has made it. You know, Amazon, places like Amazon, for a couple of clicks, I don't know if I'm paying more money or less money. I just know I don't have to sit in line for an hour and watch, be in the torture of watching somebody, you know, go through that to sell a toaster. So, you know, that's, that's the technology. Of, in, in, right. You know, it's, uh, it's sad in some way. I wouldn't want to be a, uh, someone who owns shopping malls right now. I think that'd be a bad investment. In other ways, you know, that's how life progresses and the world progresses. So in, in our tech space, years back, um, I realized that clients would appreciate so much more if almost like a fancy doctor, I can actually tell them in advance before bad thing is going to happen to their body or into their network. So we set up many, many sensors that basically talk to us all the time directly from their network that when I get up at 6 a.m. in the morning and I look at my report, I know that this network as a server that got a drive going bad and this other network got a workstation that seemed to be infected and we can instantly jump in into all of those situations and start fixing them even before the client opened the doors to their office things are taken care of just imagine like um, if you had that kind of a doctor that you don't have to go and do all these checkups and everything and he just calls you up and say hey 
this this little thing we need to do today. I got some reporting from your iWatch. I don't know what it would be that you need to do this and that. Or if it was your car mechanic who said, you really need to drive the car into the shop because you have this thing that you don't know about and I do and needs to be taken care of. So if you add value to, to the transaction or to the relationship with the client, they would always come back to you. And it actually, it stops even being a matter of price because when you are that good at the service that you provide, they realize that if they had not had you and waited until the server went in fire and gone smoke, and now two or three days we'll take to order a new one and rebuild the whole thing, you just saved them $20,000 because you knew in advance that one of the parts supplies is going bad and you yep. took care of it. Right. It's a huge difference. It's so Price guess, versus yeah. value. Right. So every, every business, if you really try to think smart and go deep, you're probably going to find some interesting ways that you can make yourself more valuable and do something unique in your way of doing business that the competition is not doing. So it's not going to be, you charge me X, but they charge X minus 10. So I'm going to go with them, but they don't provide the same service. Right. So it's not anymore about the dollars. It's the whole package that you have to be in value. We try, I mean, look, I mean, in the 30 years that I ran my, my first company, years and years back, we built servers and workstations. Why? Because I used to love working with hardware. It was fun. And we made a lot of money. We could beat the heck out of Compaq and everyone else who was around because we could make those machines so much cheaper. But then Dell showed up and that whole concept of beating Dell at hardware was you'll never make it. And we had to ditch that entire business altogether and move into something that Dell couldn't do, which was back, invest in yourself, become an expert at whatever it is that you think that your clients need. And Dell cannot sell that. It doesn't come in a box. It's, it's a person with knowledge that they need to get or a team of people. And, and again, it's many, many changes that you have to listen to the market. And even if Many years, we had a lot of money coming in from simply building and selling hardware. That little candy was taken away from us. And if we were not willing to <laughs> let go and adjust and learn some new skills, we would be out of business like many yeah. other companies. Right. No, that's, that, those are very wise words. It's the people that succeed are the ones that follow that type of pattern. No question about it. Uh, Asher, let's talk back about block ransomware. Tell me, what, what is the secret sauce? Tell us what you can about it, what Block Ransomware does differently. And I also want to hear what's in the future for you. And I'd like to hear, if you don't mind, um, advice you'd give somebody else who's got that you know, light bulb above their head, the epiphany like you had about you know, how to solve this big problem. What do you do with it? Give them the advice of how to get started because not everybody has your innate skills. Um, so Black Ransomware was unique because we, as a technology company, since I already owned one company, I had access to all the technology that is available to the market. Any antivirus, any endpoint, we played with everything, and yet it seen that in certain situations, they were not good enough to block ransomware or to prevent ransomware from... I even given the example, 99% of the time, they were doing a good job, which most of them would not go that far, but there was the 1% that they would not stop it. Think about the great Tesla that 99% of the time when he hit the brakes, it stops. But this one time, unknowing, it just go at 100 miles into the wall. Well, I don't want that car if that was the case. It's similar so if, to you're giving the, if I give you 100 M&Ms, one of them will kill you. Right. You, you would not eat them. How many do you want? Right. Right. So <laughs> we basically, the unusual or the way that we fixed the problem with black ransomware was basically what we call the last line of defense where all the other ones failed, and we want them to be in place to eliminate a lot of the noise, we will kick in and we would stop it no matter what ransomware it was. And that was really special. And that's the reason that the patent office was willing to give us all the patents that we asked for. Um, it's, I know it sounds like a grand statement that without knowing what the future one would come, we can actually beat it up. That's pretty amazing. I mean, if you describe it. The technology that we came up with was very tricky. It was a very aggressive to attack the hackers at their own game. It was not a defensive system, which is many of the other ones. And by taking advantage of the two, and I think maybe military came in too. It's almost like Israel is one of those countries 
that if we know that someone's going to come and just blow us up, we're not waiting for the missiles to fly in. We're going to just go and knock them dead even before anything started, period. So it's a little bit of a different way of approach. We included a lot of what is called honeypots. So there are, in a way, bad data that was totally fake, sitting in all kinds of like weird places. We know where it is. They don't know where it is. They hit those landmines and sending all the alerts up in the air that are basically in the network and many, many, many other tricks. It's a very- So it's the iron dome of ransomware? Is that what you're saying? In a way, yes. In a way, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, look, the hackers are smart. I gotta give them credit. They, um, it's a lot of smart IT people that are doing the wrong type of work. Um, so you have to be always two or three steps clever and make something look like they really got to the gold where it's really not and catch them in action and take them out really, really fast. And no one can stop hackers from coming into your network. That's just a foolish expectation. We started from that assessment that the, the, the bad guys inside the network, how did they get there? I don't really care. There's a million ways that can tell you to do it. What I care is how quickly would I recognize that they're in the, in the network trying to encrypt the data and take them out instantly. And if I can do that, I guarantee you that we limit the damage to almost nothing for clients. Yeah, I looked up some stats that uh, ransomware is up 80% in 2020. And just in the last three months, which has a lot to do with the, you know, the situation of coronavirus and how much more vulnerable networks are because of, of the people working remotely, it's even up uh, about 200% in just the, in the, in the, in the last uh, 90 days or so. So it's, it's a, uh, you know, the hackers are working from home. It's a growing problem. It's yeah. definitely a growing problem. What's the future for your company? Um, my goal, unrelated to any money that will come from it, uh, would be to have the technology protecting as many businesses as we can. I mean, so of course, when we build a company, we already knew who potentially would buy it out or we would, <laughs> that's part of the process. You're looking for the exit at some point. Um, right. And part of it is to have a very large partner like Microsoft or Cisco that can take the technology and deploy across countries and thousands and thousands of partners just or businesses. You can imagine how much work it will take if I try to train as many engineers as needed to go and deploy it. Yeah, it impossible. You got to give it to the really big hands and say, here it is, go do it. So if I had seen it around the world, um, protecting many, many businesses, forcing the hackers to find some other type of trouble to deal with, then I'll be more than thrilled. And, and I'm sure if I get to that point, there would be a great financial reward. You can imagine if you were able to reach that level, um, someone will pay for, for that. Well, I hope that happens. Uh, that would be fun. Yeah. You, know, you know, look, it was a fun ride even to this point. So oh, I can imagine. If nothing else happened in the future, it was an amazing experience to go to that point. And if you look at it that way, anything further would be just like another bonus. Right. You can do it for the money. I mean, this product from the design, from all the work was Come really on. designed. Come uh, on. Uh, well, <laughs> okay, this is not an advice for anyone who starts a business. Okay, go, go make money. But I don't believe money is the main motivator of anything, but I do believe that it's, a, it's a definitely an important element. You need money to... to yes to keep score if nothing else, keep score. Yes, but money would not get you out by yourself at 5 no. a.m. in the morning and keep you at 1 a.m. in the lab. I guarantee you, no. it doesn't matter how much money is out there. If you don't have the drive and the passion and believing in what you're doing, you will quit in a month. That's what you're I would right. give you before you would say, you can hand me another $100,000 right now. No, it's, I'm not getting up tomorrow. Right. It's not gonna work. So it's a combination of few things. Um, the last question that you asked me was, uh, what would you tell um, someone who wanted, who have a dream, who have an idea, want to file a patent, want to start a business? I think they'll need to do their homework. I don't think that anyone who just wake up in the morning and have an idea should just spend all their money and just go after it because we know the odds of success are relatively small to start a new business. So I think that they need to get some education on the subject. I really think they should write down their ideas. It really should go down to paper or this time, I guess, type it in on the computer. You need to reread the same thing that you wrote before and readjust because your draft one is really not the business plan. 
it might be, it might have a good concept of what would happen from there, but it's far away from having all the meat on the bones. It's, it's like a nothing. Um, you do want to have um, a number of good friends that you trust to tell you the truth, to run by them the idea of what you're trying to do, and be perfectly okay to hear hopefully constructive criticism, or maybe someone would be completely honest to tell you this is a complete waste of your money and this is why. I think that's a tightrope that's very hard to walk though because some people are just noisemakers and tell you all the reasons things can't work and it's important that you don't, you know, let that dissuade you. Speed bumps are different than roadblocks and so you have to not, you know, are, 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 the, are the obstacles that which you can't overcome or are those now new opportunities that will keep other people from following you once you navigate those hazards? And so it's a tricky one because- I'll, 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 I'll give you an idea on this one. So yeah, Mark yeah. Hankin is from Hankin Patent Law. I'll give him a, a little promo here. Is my patent attorney. And before I filed for Black Ransom War, I had three other patent ideas that I took to Mark. And he looked yeah. at them and he left and he said, this is really clever. This is very fun. Go make 10 of them, give to all your friends. Do not waste any money to file this for a patent. Right. And he was right. I mean, so he was objective. It was a clever idea that if he thought, wow, we can really patent this and sell millions of them, he would say, let's go. He would love to have the business. But he was honest enough to say something, and he was able to explain. So even if one of your good friends is saying this is not going to work, ask the question, why? And listen. So if they can explain in a way that makes sense, just something that you didn't think about, but they can articulate, walk away. They probably got a good point. Right. If, if it's just an opinion of someone who likes to say about everything, this will never work. It's a bump. Move on. Look for better input from someone else. And you need to know that if you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to be really, really strong physically and mentally. Not the kind of person that often gets sick and can get up day in and day out to get the work done. And mentally, even more, very, very strong to it. Many, many storms along the way, and yet finding a way to get out of it, start again, get on your feet one more time, starting over, and be willing to make changes. There is no possible way that your idea on day one was the winner. You're going to have to fail. You're going to have to get your hands dirty until you're going to find the right way to do it. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen on try number one. Didn't happen to me. I doubt no. it happens to anyone. No. Oh, that's really good advice. Now, a little birdie told me you've got a really interesting story about working with the FBI. So let's close with your story. I want to hear All it. All right. Well, this, this one's a really funny one. And I always throw that one in that, um, you know, there's all these places where they tell, tell three facts and one of them is going to be wrong and the other two are right. And my one that... I, everyone gets fooled by that one is that I would say, well, unfortunately I was one week in the San Jose police station and I was uh, Santa Cruz police station. And they all think, oh my God, they arrested him. I mean, what did the guy do? He's not looking like the guy that gets in trouble. And the real story is that, yes, I was in one week in the police station with FBI and police officers and we had training on forensic and data recovery. So everything that they do pretty much is data related. And if you know how to recover, and if you know how to deal with data, so that particular one, there isn't the word FBI and NSA. Just imagine the criminals who think when they're coming to get, someone come to arrest them, they take that laptop and they bang it hard on the floor. And if you go, oh, they'll never get the data out of that one. Oh, be my guest. Give me that drive. We That's will be able one. to find a way to get it done. So it was a very high level um, data recovery um, for people that, in one way or another, need to recover data from something that was erased purposely, damaged purposely, or anything at that level, which allowed me to open another side to my business, which is data recovery. Again, I mean, we're touching data in so many ways. If it is ransom, if it is maintaining it, if it is recovering it, we, we have a lot of hooks when it comes to the critical data for clients. So it was fun. It was a good week of working with other professionals and, um, I was, I think, the only techie over there. Everyone else was more like coming from some government agency or something. I loved it. It was really yeah, fun. I bet that was fascinating. Oh, learning experience. My God, how much money we made out of that knowledge. How many difficult recoveries that came from lawyers and many either IT people that already tried to recover, couldn't do it. And we end up getting the driver and say, can you fix it? Because we couldn't do it. So yeah. 
It was, again, another pivot a little bit. I was bored probably for a little bit of time. This course came up with a trainer that looked amazing. And I decided I'm just going to drive over there, spend an entire week, get my head out of everything else I'm doing, and learn a new skill. See what I can do with this. It was very beneficial. Tell us if we wanted to find a way to get our hands on some block ransomware and protect our businesses. How do we get a hold of you? How does somebody engage you and learn more? So the easiest way is to actually go to our website, and that's www.blockransomware.com. Really simple. It's the only thing that that particular company is doing. It's just dealing with ransomware and hackers. Um, you can get there our telephone number, our email address, and everything else. Um, we have partners that will be able to help with the implementation, and um, you'll be able to gain more knowledge about how did we solve the problem. Very good. Well, Asher, I knew you'd be a great guest. You've got so much to say and so much experience in business and starting a business and running a business and pivoting and reinventing and... I just knew that you'd be just the perfect guest for Small Biz Cast. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Joel. I really appreciate it. Um, it's an honor for me to have this really fun conversation with you, as always. And I'm glad to be able to be on your program. Over the many years I've worked at Mercury Document Imaging, we've been solving business problems using technology. And now we have this new reality. Employees are working from home and companies are trying to stay relevant and efficient and have accountability for their employees while doing so. The big problem is that the cyber criminals are working from home too. And they have been doing this longer and know what they're doing and know what vulnerabilities you've created by kind of throwing this together quickly. So now that it looks like we're going to be here for a while, it's time to think about this. I want you to reach out to my company. We'll either help you or refer you to a partner that can help you, depending on what the vulnerability is. But the first thing to do is start with an assessment, make sure that you're protected, and then find the weak link. So please call us, 818-782-1221. My extension is 25913, but call anybody at the office. We're all happy to help you, and we want to make sure that we don't have any more problems than we already have. Thanks. On the next Small BizCast, I've assembled a panel to help solve a very interesting problem. Janice Miller, attorney, Stephen Geller, CPA, and Nancy Fox, executive coach and marketing expert, help Nigel take his one-person business and turn it into something larger and more scalable. You won't want to miss this. In fact, you'll want to share it.